How's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 233, and I had a conversation with Dr. Jack Brown. He's an expert in body language and emotional intelligence, and he's also a physician. And for some of you, he may sound familiar. You may already follow him on Twitter where he breaks down the body language information from videos of the debates and news conferences and things like that. Really fascinating stuff. Uh, During this conversation, we recorded some of the video. He's uh, describing a couple of hand gestures and body language things. And so I'm going to put a little blurb from that on my YouTube channel at Official Susan Ruth. So youtube.com slash Official Susan Ruth to check that out. Um, It's just going to be just a tiny little bit. But speaking of YouTube, for so many episodes, I've been promising that hypnotherapy video. And Rachel Keis has edited it and it looks amazing. She took my cartoons that I drew from the hypnotherapy session and incorporated them into the video. It's a lot of fun. I don't know if you remember, but I I mentioned that the experience was about an hour and a half long, but Rachel managed to get it down to about six minutes just for a nice informational. And I'm narrating it. So it's, it's a lot of fun. So if you're interested in that, also go check out the YouTube channel at Official Susan Ruth. I want to mention a podcast that I have discovered that I like and that I think you would like too because it's along the same lines as this one. Uh, It's called Bloom with Chelsea Rose, so definitely check that out. Uh, I am going to be at the Seattle Film Summit, and by at, I mean in, and by in, I mean on Zoom. So the seattlefilmsummit.com, it's going to start on the 2nd. It runs through the 22nd of November, and it's all about film. And that means directors, producers, actors, financiers, 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 people in finance. How about that? I'll say it that way. The money people, the art direction people, the cinematographers, uh, the behind the scenes, all the things. Um, it's going to be a really fun experience. I hope you check it out. When you get your ticket, it'll be good for all of the different panels. I myself am moderating a panel that includes filmmaker, producer, writer, director John Penny, who's actually been on this show, filmmaker, producer, writer Christopher J. Moore, screenwriter, producer Jessica Walter, who also happens to be my lovely roommate, screenwriter, producer, Russ Woody, who's also an Emmy winner, uh, and cinematographer, Charles Pappert, who is on a million different projects. Key and Peele, Black Lady Sketch Comedy Show, uh, Crank Acres, so much stuff. Lots and lots and lots and lots of information. Uh, General admission is only 100 bucks. Student tickets are $75. And those who have been hit hardest by the pandemic can apply for a special discount. So again, that is at seattlefilmsummit.com where you can register. My panel, Finding Your Voice as a Creator, will be Sunday, November 15th from 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I hope to see you there. Uh, I believe it's going to be one of the situations where I moderate the panel and then we'll be able to take your questions and that kind of thing, which is very exciting. I wanted to mention that I'm going to be recording the preambles to the next three or four episodes uh, in the next couple of days. 
I'm going to be going on a vacation and to visit some family in Seattle. And <laughs> who knows what's going to be happening in the world over the next three weeks. But my preambles, everything will be set and the episodes will be in queue. And so if something nutty happens, I won't be able to talk about it. Uh, please don't think that I don't care if you don't hear me talk about it. It's just that at the time I recorded them, I didn't know. Let's hope everything goes well. I know uh, the election is just in a few days, which is bonkers. Time is flying. Uh, here we are. Other news, social media, Hey Human Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook. And my personal social media, Susan Ruthism, is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. You can uh, check out my music and art and acting information and things at susanruth.com. You can find me <laughs> and my albums on iTunes. I've got four records up there on iTunes. You just search Susan Ruth and you will find me. And of course, go to heyhumanpodcast.com where you'll find a links page with information about every episode and every guest I've had on the show. I curate that very carefully and everything from ways to reach my guests to find their social media and that kind of thing to books we talk about or articles or or whatnot. So there's also a store where you can get Hey Human merchandise. It's an ad-free podcast, so it really helps support the show and some really fun stuff I've designed for the merch. So definitely check that out. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For sure on iTunes, it really helps to get those reviews because it, it pushes it up through the algorithm. So definitely do that. Take a few minutes and let me know what you think of the show. And thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. There are so many podcasts, and I'm really glad that you picked this one to take a listen to. There's some really fun episodes coming up. I put a bunch in the queue in preparation for me taking a little time off, and this will be, uh, be an interesting couple weeks. Take care of each other. Be kind. Thanks again for listening. Here we go. Dr. Jack Brown, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you, Susan. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm excited. You have a, your career is, is very interesting to me. So you are, I want to make sure I get this right, behavioral intelligence and body language expert. Yes, yes. Yeah. How does one, had, were you one of those kids that always could tell when your friends were lying kind of person or what brought you into that? Well, so I'm a physician and I'm only one of two physicians in North America who's also a body language expert, but I've been studying body language long I have, longer than I have medicine. When I was about 11 years old, um, I, there was a, I, so I grew up in a great family, great parents, but there was another adult I looked up to. He ended up fooling a lot of kids and a lot of adults, but he ended up not being a good person. So he fooled me, uh, you know, again, along with a lot of other people. And I felt like uh, I really beat myself up. I should have seen that this guy wasn't sincere, that he wasn't a good guy. So I went to my parents. I said, how do you tell a good person from a bad person? Um, and they gave me an okay answer. My pa parents have good interpersonal skill, but I wasn't satisfied. Um, and so I started reading college uh, 
I started reading uh, psych journals from a college library when I was in middle, middle school. So I, I, I used to get in trouble for, um, you know, your son's not paying attention. He's reading this stuff, <laughs> you know. And so I started actually studying uh, psychology and, and, and behavioral science and body language when I was in middle school. So I've been actually studying longer than I have uh, conventional medicine. So yeah. oh, That's really fascinating. I, I imagine, too, that once you have those skills down, even at an intermediate level, the world changes completely in front of you. It's a, it's a watershed um, type of um, skill. And, and when you think about it, it's, it's accessible to everyone. Everyone can learn it. Um, and we often know it better than we think we do, and we suppress it. We suppress instincts. Um, when you hit your teenage years, you get good at suppressing instincts, and you, you don't listen to your inner voice as much. I mean, now some people, obviously, obviously all people do to a degree, but some of us suppress that more, and it all depends on the situation, all depends on the source. Um, but yeah, you can certainly, no matter what age you are, you can hone that skill. And it, it's, it's fascinating. It, imagine if, if say, 99.7%, uh, so that's about 299 out of 300 people, uh, have, um, were deaf couldn't hear anything and you could hear and you invented this tiny, this little invention or this pill that costs 10 cents and you can make everyone hear. Who wouldn't take advantage of that? Everyone would take advantage of that. Um, that's the degree to which I feel that body language affords ones. Um, of course, it's not an extra sense, although sometimes it feels like it, um, but it enhances your other senses um, and it enhances your communication dramatically. Uh, so it's, it's it's, it's kind of like once you um, once you take the red pill, it's like you can't look back, and and it, it it's fascinating. Um, uh, you know whether you're trying to avoid a mistake in your love life. Uh, you know you, you, maybe you dated a sociopath and you don't or a narcissist and you don't want. And at first you were fooled, like a lot of us are, or maybe the same kind of person only it's a boss, or maybe it's an employee. Um, or, you know, or et cetera, maybe someone you voted for, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you love someone and you or, or you put a lot of time and energy in, into um, or money into a relationship, any one of those things, you invest a lot of yourself into it. You, we tend to not see things that are right in front of us. We tend to see what we want to see. Um, and so we, so we, we aren't objective. Um, the opposite is also true. Say pick someone you can't stand. Uh, and you might artificially criticize them more about certain things or see things, bad things, and maybe they're really bad anyway, but you see things that aren't there because you're artificially criticizing them. Body language is an objectivity tool. As human beings, we're inherently biased. We, um, we don't see things in an objective sense. So it's an objectivity tool, and you want to see things as they are, not as you want them to be uh, if you're you know, trying to operate in the real world. Well, that's, it brings up an interesting point. So for you trying to, or not trying to, you do as you're reading people, but I'm sure many of the people you're reading, you would not sit down to coffee with and some you might even abhor. How do you get out of your own way in those instances? Are there such rote mannerisms that, that across the board that people have that uh, supersede a biases or... When body language is classically taught in a real strict sense, um, you say, okay, th this body language goes along with this thought feeling. And I say thought feeling kind of like the, the 
thoughts and emotions are kind of, um, I kind of amalgamate that in the one. So this, this, this particular body language on the face or on the rest of the body um, goes along with one thought feeling or one thought emotion. And this one goes along with another. Um, yes. And, and you learn to read in a cluster. You, 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 you look and you see uh, not just one thing, but two or three or four, maybe five or six or 10 even almost simultaneously or simultaneously, or maybe a few seconds before and a few seconds after, like a sentence, a sentence takes a a little while to speak or to read. Um, So body language is like that too. It's not necessarily instantaneous, but a lot of it is instantaneous or just a few seconds before, a few seconds after you say, what does that say? So you're reading that person in that moment, in that context, in that moment. So you could have a real honest person that's telling a lie. And, and, um, and then if, Maybe if you don't see the gestalt, you say, oh, that person's a liar. I don't want to date him or I don't want to date her. or I don't want to be hired by him or I don't want to hire her, et cetera. You might say all that, um, but so that's telling you in the moment. There are patterns to look for that tell you the overall, the gestalt. That, that's, is, what is this person's overall personality footprint? Do they have a footprint of a sociopath? So you can see an honest person that's pretty honest when they're lying. And maybe make a false judgment. But you also, what's a liar look like when they are not lying in this moment? But they're an overall really pathological liar, but they're not telling a lie in this moment. So how do you spot that? That's a fascinating thing. And so if you, that you look for insincerity tells. So people who are chronically dishonest will, will have those insincerity tells even when they're not lying in this moment. Now, not always, but very often. So you know what to look for. So you can kind of tell either. But you want to be, you, you, when you have a small sample size, you know, when you just see a one image, like a posed image, someone sent me a picture of Amy Coney Barrett and, and Donald Trump and, and Amy Coney Barrett's family, along with uh, the first lady in the, in the White House taken um, I don't know, three weeks ago or so. And um, it was a posed picture. So you want to be maybe a little bit cautious about, uh, interpreting pose pictures, but impromptu uh, pictures are, are a lot more valuable uh, in terms of what is actually going on there. And even more valuable, of course, are vi- video material. Or in, and of course, real life, when there's no video, but you're there sitting there or standing there watching someone. What about people? What was it? I know that this was this is falsely attributed to, I think it to Goebbels, but I don't think he actually said it. I think it's just over time, it's been given to him about if you tell a little bit of a truth in the middle of a, a lie, they'll believe it because you've given a seed of, of truth. That, that's that's a, definitely a truism. So I, I work with, uh, so one group of clientele I work with sometimes are, are office holders that are already holding office. I, I'm, I'm real select about the, the people that I'm that are I work with are running for office or running for re-election, maybe are running for the first time. But office holders, say you're a mayor or a governor or a senator, there's a lot of people coming to your office wanting favors, wanting you to support legislation, and they're telling you 98% truth with a little bit of lie in there. Yeah, that's a real common technique. And in fact, Junior, when Junior steals the cookie, the last cookie out of the cookie jar, Junior's kind of maybe telling that, doing that too. And it's a, it's a very, um, you know, it's camouflage, you know, or when, when the 16 year old buys, uh, you know, condoms and he puts on a, a pack of gum and a, and a soda pop and, you know, three other things on, on the counter. He is trying to camouflage what, you know, yeah, people do that all the time. It's a really common lie technique. And um, 
yeah, you, you want to be able to spot the nonverbals that go along with that. And of course, lying isn't the only thing uh, with that body language tells you. Uh, sincerity, again, is greater footprint. Um, what about uh, affection? You know, it, it, are there... Uh, do, so people can fake lust things, you know, does this person really love me or do, are they in love with me? Or maybe this person's trying to date me because they uh, think my dad has money or I have money. They're after power or maybe they're really dangerous. So there's a threat assessment. Uh, you know, threat assessment is typically given for, um, you know, physical danger, which of course mm -hmm. is super important. And by the way, if always trust your instincts. When it comes to physical danger, the possibility of physical danger, always trust your instincts. You should learn to trust your instincts with everything, even if there's not a physical danger component, but particularly when there's physical danger, uh, always, always, always trust your instincts and learn to keep, learn to differentiate my, my instincts from my anxieties. And sometimes that's difficult. I have my, some of my clients keep an instinct journal, like, you know, even little things like, was, did I pick the right movie or did I pick the right restaurant or did I pick the right date or did I pick the right job or the, the shortest, the fastest line in the grocery store? You know, and you want to hone your instincts, listen to your instincts. Um, you, you really want to uh, pay attention to that. Well, everybody lies at some point. That's it's, right. That's yeah. it's just oh, about yeah. the kind of lying. And again, it's, it's not necessarily so as I say, there's a relationship and there's a drop off in affection. Um, you know, it, it, it is, it is someone when they're falling out of love with you, maybe they're not cheating. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not cheating, but um, you want to spot those, those kind of warning signs. Are they dropping off in their affection? Or, or at the beginning of the relationship, you know, are, do they really, are they, do they just want, you know, are they just lustful? Do they just want a one night stand? Or is, you know, what, you want to be able to spot those. But also when you're selling something, you know, if you're a salesperson, or if you're teaching something, yeah, you know, body language is really important if you're a teacher of anything, whether you're teaching kindergartners or um, if you're teaching college or university classes or adult ed, how you, the, the, the nonverbals you use. For example, if you use, if you use uh, palm up gestures, your audience is going to retain, they're gonna have a better long-term retention of the material. Uh, if you use palm down gestures, they're gonna have less, uh, long-term retention of the material. You're also gonna alienate people, even if they like you, if you use palm down gestures. You wanna to tend to use palm up gestures. Is that just feel more positive so the brain reacts better? Is that with the palm up? Yeah, it's more of an open, um, a, a less, um, more. Now it depends what the rest of the body is doing, of course, so you don't wanna overgeneralize. You never wanna go on one thing only, but yeah, in general, palm up gestures. So I'm gonna lower my camera here. So, so Donald Trump always does this. He, he does palm up gestures good, but he keeps his upper arm close to his torso. You, you, you shouldn't do that, that particularly on a straight male, uh, but also on, uh, you know, females, regardless of your sexual orientation, you want to spread out a little bit from your torso. You want to show a little bit of confidence and you don't want to flap like a wounded T-Rex with short arms like Donald Trump does. He does this wounded T-Rex thing. You, you, want to you want to move your hands slower. Yeah, you want to do palms up, Donald, but you want to move your hands slower. This is confident. And you'll notice uh, Barack does this a lot, Barack Obama. Barack Obama also does a basketball steeple real commonly. This is an alpha-beta hybrid. Um, so this is not too alpha and not too beta. Um, and, and if you use too many hyper-alpha gestures, like here's one that Donald Trump does all the time. He does this when he's sitting all the time. It's hyper-alpha. I, when I coach people, I say, if you're going to do this, 
you only want to do it maybe for a tenth of a second, maybe during the one syllable in the most important word in the most important sentence of the whole hour you're talking, you do this. It's literally that short because it's kind of like a really strong spice and stew or soup. You know, a little bit is a little bit too much. What is it about that that makes it alpha? Is it? it well, it's an alpha and it's even a hyper alpha. It's just the way the brain reads it. It takes it as more of a dominant display. Um, it, it, the fact when you're touching it, what's, and, and you can have a, a lower steeple too. Like, like Donald Trump does this when he's sitting, but when he's like when he's sitting in an open chair, he does this. But when he's sitting at a desk, he might do this. Sometimes he does this. That's so a real hyper alpha. You know, what, to say why the brain interprets it that way, we don't always know the answer to why. It feels very pokey. Maybe it's a pokey feeling, you know? <laughs> That's my layman's idea. <laughs> it's pokey. <laughs> it's really artificial. The other time you see, the only other time you really see that are news uh, journalists when they're, you know, doing the report. You know, uh, John, we're down here at the, um, at the stadium. And, um, you know, they're doing this. It does feel artificial. I get that completely. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Now, palm down, that that's alpha. That's we can explain that more. We have a more of an explanation of why does that feel um, alpha? Um, that's more of a throwing. I'm hiding something. Uh, I'm dominating you. I'm covering you. Um, um, you know, I, I might be hiding something, et cetera, like that. Um, but uh, in palms up, my, my, my hands are open, my, you know, um, real metaphorical. Um, my hands are open, handshakes, you know. I, you can see I have nothing in my hand. I have nothing in your hand. Let's touch each other, which you can talk a lot about handshakes if you want. But handshakes, people, well, of course, for a year now almost, we haven't been doing handshakes. But back, you know, yeah. in, the, in the before times, and hopefully in not too many um, months in the future, we'll start those handshakes again. But it, it, people always mess up handshakes. Donald do Trump one is he grabs and he like pulls people in. I've noticed that when he goes to shake people's hands, it's like he forces them toward him. It feels very abrasive. and Yeah. So uh, men that do that to other men. So he, he'll grab he'll grab and, and he'll pull you in. Like that, yeah. exactly what you say. And, and sometimes with shorter people, he'll pull them up. He'll pull them up even like with Nancy Pelosi, the day he was inaugurated, there's a famous picture of that. He was pulling her in and up. So men that do that to other men are consistently. Now we all do, might do that once in a while in a crowded room or when we're off balance or, you know, not thinking or tired or something. You might mess up a handshake when you're not concentrating or tired or just not paying attention. But men who do that consistently to other men are always narcissistic or worse, always, if, they, if you do it consistently. Now, if, if a men that do that to, other, to, to women are not only narcissistic, they're objectifying. That woman is just, she's a, she's a I'm just using her. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's a, so that's a really a, a strong warning sign. That, Absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah, that should send up red flags all over the place. Well, you, when you were talking about the instinct thing, um, that to me, I feel like human beings pick up on a ton that they don't even realize they're picking up on when you're saying, make sure you listen to your instincts, but then their, their brain goes, oh, no, no, it's, it's okay. I'm just overreacting or whatever. But that initial tell. We get really good at that. For example, uh, so study was, has been done where they, um, it, this requires a lot of vetting, a lot of back work for this. So if you interview, uh, if you have a bunch of men 
and you interview their background and all their former partners and their friends or their former partners and all this, you know, is this man faithful is, is, or is he a cheater? And you try and establish that and you get images or very short videos, like five second videos of, of, of a person and you show them to women of all ages. Uh, take a guess at what age that women are, are best at just seeing a, a picture or a short video of a man they've never met and say, is this man a, a cheater or is he faithful? I would think young before they've had time to, to be, to, to, to be, um, what's their, they go through their own stuff. Either very old, they would know because they've been through stuff or very young because they're unawares. Although kid, kids, I feel like have really good intuition about people. They, they do this thing. You know, they do a lean. I, I've seen little kids do a weird lean. Even if there's no one there to protect them, no parent or whatever, I've, I've watched. Yeah, so 14, 14 years old um, is, is the, you know, so, so it's old enough to be interested in, in dating and, you know, the, uh, the opposite sex, you know, or, or interested in dating. And, and, but they're uh, young enough to have a one foot in childhood. And um, so that, that we, you know, I tell people often, like, you know, it's a meditative kind of practice is, is channel your 95 year old self. You know, you should often have a conference with two other people. So the three of you, your 95 year old self and your eight year old self, or maybe your 14 year old self, you know, and the three, you should get together and channel each other. It sounds kind of metaphysical and, you know, touchy feely. I, I understand that. I'm a, I'm a man of science, but that, what, what that does is it, it taps into your, um, it's a metaphorical, symbolic way of tapping into your instincts and giving your instincts permission to talk to you and, and to listen. Cause we get so good at not listening to our instincts, even very learned people. And in fact, a lot of times the learned people are best at suppressing their instincts and maybe and formally learned people, but the people with less formal education are better at listening to their instincts. And, and that's, that also holds with body language. People with a lot of formal education tend to be poorer at body language. People with less formal education, but they might be just as smart, smarter. They just don't have formal education. They're typically better at, 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 um, uh, at reading people, but also at projecting their own body language in context. How do I act in this situation? If I want to build rapport with someone, you know, a doctor of bedside manner is a great example of that, you know, they're really learned, but they, let me ask most doctors, they think they have great bedside manner, but most of them are pretty, pretty poor, um, yeah. but they think they are. It's just like um, most cops are, are think they're better at reading other people. And there's definitely uh, absolutely police officers that are excellent at reading other people, but they're no better than the average guy in the street. Yes, there are definitely some, Police officers are great at that, but a lot of cops aren't. But you'll never tell a cop that, just like you'll never tell the doctor that they have poor, poor bedside manner. Um, yeah. Attorneys are like that too. And people that are hyper alpha in their profession, they think they're really good at, uh, at, at it, but they're, they're often not. It's, it's a fascinating thing. And it should be salespeople too. It should be a formalized um, uh, uh, in education in all those professions. It, 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 for example, if police officers were like that, there would be a lot, they'd be a lot better at de-escalation. There's a major improvement at de-escalation. If, if doctors were like that, they uh, were, had better body language and better communication skills, they, they would be sued a lot less. Well, I would so, think that a doctor who is more in touch with body language would actually be better at diagnosing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they would be able to tell, you know, 
Um, is this patient, you know, they're not really believing what I'm telling them. This might be a bread and butter basic diagnosis. I'm absolutely positive this is what the diagnosis is from the patient, from the doctor's point of view. Patient is saying, I'm out of here, man, I'm not coming back. And so the doctor's got to be able to see that, talk the person through the anxieties when they, you know, say get a diagnosis um, or, or maybe when they're holding back on things, you know, when they're holding back on symptoms and they're, you know, doctors mm-hmm. sensing for some reason they're holding back on symptoms. You, you got to be able to sense that. And, and um, you know, one thing I tell physicians is you, you always have to have a, a scribe in the room to do data entry, whether it's an old fashioned chart or a computer, have them over there. You focus on the patient. You're going to get sued less. Uh, you're you're going to bond more with the patient. You're going to enjoy your day a heck of a lot more. Um, you you got to do that. Yeah, well, I, I can tell that it excites you when you talk about it. You get very, you know, if I was going to be reading you, I can tell that that's something that you're very passionate about, which I think in any in any instance, if something gives us passion, that is the thing we should be pursuing, obviously, if we're lucky. Yeah, you should be able to have the wisdom enough to um, to listen and have the courage enough to leap, you know. Uh, I'm curious about mirroring. I know that, especially with salespeople, I know that they're taught, oh, if you mirror, if he touches your, your his face, you should touch your face and all that kind of stuff. But I think that we naturally mirror each other as well, just as a weird sort of tribal connection, even with strangers. Well, when, you have a, you have a, when you have good rapport with someone and you're not thinking about it, you tend to mirror them. Uh, or when you're attracted to someone. Um, you know, even in a business sense, you might be attracted to them or have good rapport with them and you're maybe you're not thinking of proceeding, you know, in that direction too far. But if you're, if you have good rapport with someone, whether it's, whether it's platonic or, or romantic or inclinations of romance, you know, you, you're, you're going to tend to mirror them. Now in a, in a pure sales sense, I caution salespeople um, of mirroring too close in time. Um, okay. So you, you do this, so I, I do this and, and, and or too close in, in uh, exactness of the body or the face, because it will be clearly read as a manipulative thing. It, people will catch on to it really quick. Uh, but the other thing is, if you don't know the basic body language to begin with, you often mirror negative things and not really realizing you're doing it. Of course, you know, not a real, if someone makes an angry face, that's obvious. I'm not going to mirror that. But there's a lot of other modest things that people might, are moderate things that people might be mirroring. They don't realize they're really mirroring a negative. And so they're going to push the person away. So I, in general, caution people against that very much. Um, it's funny how, uh, how some couples end up actually looking alike, too. I always find that intriguing. And those tend to be really good couples, the ones that favor each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it it kind of goes to laughter. Um, you know, people, um, that, that's true, too. Do you think, like, one couple, one person will think the other one's really funny and, and it's just vice versa? And that's, that's kind of overlaps in that same thing. Um, but maybe we won't be laughing at them, but they think they're, they're both yeah. laughing at each other. It shows a bonding. Well, yeah, that's, that's a form of that. That's a form of that. In fact, laughter is really much more of a bonding, rapport building uh, behavior than it is laughing. Is that it is about reaction to something that's funny. It, it's, it's, it's a fascinating subject. Laughter is, is really fascinating. It's a bonding thing. But yeah, on a, in a general sense, you're going you're gonna to mirror a bunch of other things too. You're going to mirror a bunch of other things. Um, just the way people stand, um, the way they lean, um, even words. Um, 
for example, um, you know, if, if, if someone, if say, if you use the word children and I use the word kids, I might choose to use your word children, you know, and, and just, it, they're both, they're somewhat syn synonymous, um, although it, it's interesting, the word children tends to have more affection towards it than the word kids, a little less affection, but, but I should use your, your whatever your synonym is. Um, also, de-escalation. So you can kind of use it in a reverse sense. Say you're, you're with someone that's really getting upset. Uh, and so their, their words are louder. Um, and if, if you just talk quieter, so you're using the, the of course, verbal, um, this is not nonverbal purely, but, um, and, and you use calmer face and calmer body, um, you know, they, you, they will deescalate. So you just use calmer words and quieter words, but also deescalate in your body. I, I've even had um, some um, clients where well, they'll, what they'll do is, you know, someone will um, be uh, real confrontational with them and then they'll just stand shoulder to shoulder with them. You know, you can't get, it's, it's, it's like a, it's like funky kind of in your face, Almost, um, you, you can't, you, you don't want to do it all the time because sometimes it's, it's, it's kind of, it kind of gets people laughing too much slash almost insulting. You can kind of do that too much. But if you just stand shoulder to shoulder someone, they, they almost can't get mad at you. You could be, uh, you know, at Sky Harbor International Airport in Phoenix and, you know, the, the concourses are like a mile long. You can see someone from the other, other end of the airport and you see two guys, their torsos are facing each other. Um, and you can tell from well, before you see any detail, those guys are probably confrontational. You get close and you see that. So when you shake someone's hand or you first greet them, I mean, even if you've seen them a hundred times, you, you want to, your feet pointed right towards them, your hips, um, your, your, your shoulders, uh, your, your, uh, your head, and you know, I want to greet them like this, you, and their, your eyes. And you can, when, you, when you first meet someone, again, or you first see them, even if you've seen them a hundred times or a thousand times before, you still want that eye contact. And it's one of those times where you can look a little bit longer, especially during a handshake, where any other times it might feel a little bit starish, like you're staring. But then after a few seconds, you don't want to, you don't want to keep your body pointing in. You want to tilt very slightly and maybe, maybe put weight um, slightly more on one shoulder. Not, I'm exaggerating here, but to, you know, just a slight turn and a slight shift. And it, and it relaxes the minute, relaxes the moment. You don't want to stay pointed right at them um, because it tends to heighten up the uh, alphaness. You want to just slightly bait it down. Of course, you don't want to turn too much. You definitely don't want to do that because that shows them disrespect. Huh, it's such a dance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, these are things we're doing to a large degree that we don't realize we, we do. Uh, but when you learn it, you know, so some people, most people have a lot of a fair amount of instinct to it. And, you know, most people do a fair amount, right, a fair amount of the time. But when you when you back learn it and bullet point it and then you go back in, you say, oh, man, I was messing up here. I was messing up here. I was doing this wrong. Um, you know, if you think back to your first date when you're 15 or 16 or whenever, we all can think about <laughs> Older. Kind of the awkwardness of that was probably body language. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or just being awkward. Um so if you have somebody say that is a um, a true sociopath, let's say I've read books about socio or sociopathy and they they they're learning how other people behave and they're adapting or maybe that's a psycho you would know better than I but uh, the, they're adapting. Can you tell someone is um, 
what's the word? Like, pretending to be a certain way? Or are there people that are really just so good at it that it that it's become something they've absorbed? Well, it depends on your sample size. I mean, if you're just with them for a few seconds, you know, it, it might be tough to tell. You know, if you're just with them in a few seconds, it's usually tough. But if you're, you know, I say sample size, I'm trying to sound like a statistician. But, um, you know, if you're if you are with them for more than a few moments, the more time you spend around them, the, the more accurate you'll be there. So, you know, there's Robert Hare has a, ten, a 20 point checklist um, for uh, sociopathy, psychopathy. Um, and the two most important things and it's a real famous checklist, H-A-R-E for your list, listeners is Robert Hare. Um, and uh, you, you'll, you'll see that list. The two most important things in that list um, are uh, whether if the person, the, the most important thing on that list is, is empathy. Do they have empathy? And you, if you get good at detecting empathy, uh, now some people will fake it, will fake empathy, but it's a hard thing to fake, and especially for very long. Um, they might say the right thing, but if you know the, the other behaviors to look for, again, a lot of that is body language. It's much more than just what someone is saying. So if I say, I'm sorry, but my face doesn't, you know, or I'm, I, that, that's really sad that person died, but I, you know, I don't have that face. Um, you you want to be really good at recognizing empathy. Um, and the other thing is sincerity. Now, um, again, I, I, I use this word as a more gestalt word for honesty. So if you're dishonest in a moment, you're telling a lie or the truth, you know, in, in that moment, that's a lie or a truth in a larger pattern, a meta pattern of thinking, the overall personality, that's sincerity. They tend to be mostly honest or chronic liars. That's what I mean by sincerity. I use that real, real specifically for that. So if you, if you, you want to be around people that have high empathy, and you don't want to be around people with low empathy. You want to be around people with high sincerity, and you don't want to be around people who are chronic liars or have low sincerity. Um, so it's really good. So just a quick and dirty way of telling a sociopath or psychopath are, are those. And so unless you're hiring a hitman, you know, you don't, you don't want anyone with those bad qualities. And so, you know, if you're at a workplace, you know, and you're one of a whole bunch of employees, you, the guy three cubicles down might be a sociopath, but you want to be able to spot that and keep him at arm's length. You know, you don't want to work on a project with him. You don't want to hang around with him at a company picnic, et cetera. You don't want to take a ride home from him with him, et cetera. But if, um, you know, of course, other things, you don't want to date that person. You don't want to have them babysit or dog sit for you. You know, it's, you want to be good at spotting these people. You, you'll, you'll save, um, you know, you maybe save your life, but at the very least, you'll save yourself a lot of time, money and heartache and hassle and legal. I mean, all these, you know, not all threat assessment is physical. Most sociopaths are not violent, but you don't want to, but they could be, and you don't want to be the first one on the list and you don't have a list in front of you. So you don't know if that person's committed a hundred atrocities or none before you just want to be able to spot those personalities and stay away from them. But what about the people that are uh, like the Steve jobs or the, you know, the people that maybe even Albert Einstein that have behaviors that could be read that way. Then they, they, they move up in their professions or in what they're doing not necessarily great people, but they're, they don't use it for evil. They use it for focus. And yeah, well, I mean, um, I, I don't, I don't know if very many people think that um, Albert Einstein was a sociopath or psychopath. He, he probably was um, on the autism spectrum, which is yeah. very, very different. Um, 
and he, 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 yeah, he's, he was difficult to work with, you know? Yeah. That's why I didn't mean to call it Einstein a sociopath. Yeah. I meant that, that people found him, you know, his lovers found him difficult. His wife found, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, there's a great story about him where I guess he didn't wear a tie to dinner or he, his wife and him got invited to a, a dinner and his wife wanted him to wear a tie or maybe it was an after, like he didn't wear a tie and he, he got scolded. I can't remember. Um, but, and so he, he sent the tie to the people afterwards and here's my tie. Would you just stare at it for three hours and then we'll, we'll call it even, uh, something like that. Yeah. There's a lot of, like, he's a fascinating guy to study just about his creativity. And, um, that's, a obviously another kind of emotional intelligence and, um, one of the great, one of the great, um, uh, uh, tools that the creative, uh, person, uh, uh, uses is, um, uh, they're, they're great at, um, disinhibition. So they, they, they selectively get good at disinhibiting the brain so the creativity can flow. Uh, it's a fascinating thing about Einstein. I could talk to you about creativity is another subject I love. And of course, is it, it's a, you know, how, not just in the arts, but in anything, um, that's a fascinating subject. Um, if and, and your listeners want to understand how, how, if you want to be disinhibited, um, with regards to creativity, of course, you can be disinhibited too much and do some really bad things in society, <laughs> you know, um, you know, but, uh, are you drunk or high or something like that? Um, but, um, take a good improv class and you'll get, you know, a long, like a semester long hours a night for 15 weeks take a good improv class, you know, um, and you'll get really good at disinhibiting and boy, whatever you do, if you're, if you, even if you work alone in a room and mainly just write, you, you'll, you'll, you'll really facilitate your creativity by, by that. Um, but, but yeah, you send the gatekeepers uh, home. As I always say, uh, improv allows you to send the gatekeepers home, the one that get in your way in your brain. Yeah. I like that. I like, it's a good way of saying it. Yeah. But I, I, I it's, I probably of all the classes I've ever taken in my life, and this is something adult ed that I took well, well after university, um, it's probably the, the most valuable class I think I ever took is, is, is improv. Um, Fun and terrifying. Yeah, I struck a load of classes, you know. But. Yeah. Yeah, I loved it. I, I really loved it. Here's a question I've always wondered. When I am at a funeral, I get weirdly giggly and and inappropriate it's so inappropriate i i don't i don't know why that is and then in times when i'm supposed to be super happy sometimes i'm the opposite and it seems sad or i get emotional and almost cry i know other people that are like that because i've had conversations what the hell is that about when, when you max out your emotions sometimes you have kind of short circuits when you when you're in situations like weddings or funerals or um uh, you know, something really, really good happens and like people cry and they just don't cry. They ball. And if you just saw an image of them, um, you know, a video of them, you would think, oh, my gosh, um, someone just died and maybe they just won the lottery. But they're, you know, <laughs> yeah. or something like that. Yeah, I, I get I'm at, at, at so it's, it's kind of a short circuit when you max out. So, um, you know, in those really dramatic things, you you have to sometimes take things with a grain of salt. Um, so that's, um, so if we went to a, to a, a funeral together, I would be like crying my eyes out and you'd be laughing and like people. <laughs> I do. I do also cry. I would make that clear to everyone. I do cry at funerals, but I have been known to like weird. And it's a weird thing where you, you can't stop. 
For me, I've experienced that where I have, I remember very specifically, I went to my best friend in high school, her stepfather died. It was terrible. I mean, it was terrible, obviously. And I remember being in the pew at the church and something struck me and I I could not, I was shaking. I'm sure everyone thought I was crying, thank God, because I, I was, I couldn't stop that weird laughter thing. Here's a here's a trick to do during those times. You, you can't, of course, reach in your pocket and pinch the heck out of your thigh or something. Um, but another thing to do is picture yourself in physical danger. Um, mm-hmm. You know, picture someone coming at you with a chainsaw. You know, like it, picture yourself in physical danger and you'll get, um, you'll, you'll probably suppress that emotion. That's um, good advice. <laughs> Whenever I have to have a colonoscopy and I and I have to drink a gallon of that stuff, that's that's the only way I will go down. I picture myself in physical danger, and then I can tolerate that awful, awful feeling. But if you know, in other situations, if you if you you know you, you got to have be a strong imagery, you know, have a strong imagery of danger in front of you, and then um, or an awful, awful scene that makes you sick in a, in a film, play that in your head. Um, and you know, in it, then you maybe the giggles will stop. So that's something yeah. you you can kind of do, you know, s- steal that memory from a a, a really sad uh, scene in a in a film or a really awful scary scene in a film because uh, yeah. you already got the sad. You know? <laughs> Thankfully, that's only happened a couple times, but it has happened. I'm like, oh my god, I'm a crazy person. <laughs> Did your, did your friend ever speak to you again? Yeah. Well, luckily she didn't know that that was happening, but I felt really bad about it. But it wasn't, that was the first time that that experience happened. And I, I think it's happened one or two more times since then in my lifetime. So I guess I'm still doing better than not considering. But so what is emotional intelligence? She said, desperately trying to get off the topic of laughing at funerals. <laughs> the context in which I speak about emotional intelligence is primarily with body language. So all sorts of emo- there's all sorts of branches of emotional intelligence, but the the the, the context when I think of it and talk about it um, and write about it is is primarily within body language. How do you act appropriately using your body in terms of the, the communicating in that in that setting? So, okay, um, you know, in, in te- you know, there's lots of forms of intelligence, and um, the the people what it, emotional intelligence in general is, is one of the things that will govern how successful you are in life whether it's in personal relationships or in business. Um, lots of times the reason people is to get fired um, or, or, you know, advance in, in their career is their emotional intelligence, not necessarily their technical expertise uh, or experience at, at a particular job. It's, it's so I, I'd encourage everyone to, um, to, um, um, to study that topic. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That should, that should be taught K through 12 and all through, all through undergrad. Um, you know, that's a, uh, um, uh, what, what, you know, it, if, if it'll make you happy in life and it'll make you successful in your personal relationships and in your, in your profession, boy, um, it's fascinating that we've ignored, uh, all those subtopics that, that fit in that category and emotional intelligence is one of them. So I don't know if you're single or dating or married or whatever, but in the course of your lifetime, once you've learned all this stuff and you went through the dating process, and s- that must weed people out pretty fast for you. That's got to be a nice bonus. And with friends who uh, might... It's, it's, it's nothing. Um, it's, it's something that... Um, you don't, you don't necessarily plan on it, but it, it, yeah, it, is, it is a screening process that, um, I mean, if, if someone finds out what you do and then they say later, um, then um, that, 
you know, and you, you wonder what was it that, that that person got creeped out about or was intimidated about. And that's probably a good thing that that, that didn't proceed any further. People that aren't uh, intimidated by it or freaked out about it, that's, um, you know, a huge honesty tell there. And those people, you know, are, are, are usually have very high sincerity quotients and empathy quotients because they I'm not hiding anything. Oh, I never even thought my past in my brain, you know, um, yeah. kind of a thing. So yeah, it's, it's a funky, um, side benefit of it, you know, but, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't pursue it for that reason, but yeah. <laughs> I just say you're on the first date, you hand them a, an emotional IQ test. <laughs> you're like, could you fill this out? <laughs> Come back to me. <laughs> the, what is it? Brent Myers Briggs. <laughs> well, I mean, the other, the other, way of looking at that is, is so like, um, you're, you're tend to be attracted to people with very high empathy and you want to be around people with high empathy. And if you detect a low empathy, you, you, you want to run from it and you, you'd get very good at sensing that. But I mean, that's one reason I teach it, not just, not just in the dating situation, but I mean, for all sorts of professional and all those in-between situations. Yeah. If you detect um, low empathy. You don't. You don't want anything to do with that person. Um, but so many people are dating people like that. I feel like that. Ha- in fact, that I have a theory about. I think we talked about this when we talked on the phone when we were arranging for this conversation. Is that somebody like Donald Trump? I think, at least for me, I find him abhorrent. Uh, and I and I. But I can see why there are people that are drawn to him because I think maybe he reminds them of relationships they've had or their dad or like a weird, you know what I mean? Like, well, yeah, some people, okay. So if you're abused, say when you're young, um, you know, whether it's whatever kind of abuse it is, you, there are some people that are drawn to those same kinds of personality, even though they may fully recognize that, Oh, I don't want to be, near that person because they they remind me of my father or whoever it was that abused them. Um, But yet they often align with those people. And it's, it's ironic um, in a a lot of ways, but yeah, that is, that is um, a tendency. So that might explain why some people um, are, um, are fascinated or drawn to Donald Trump. Um, Another, another, there's a whole bunch of reasons why people um, are are attracted to him, and I've, I'm actually want, want to write a paper, and I've uh, solicited the help of psychologists, psychiatrists, to say, okay, what are common denominators um, uh, that we've seen in clinical practice slash just with our patients and our customers, et cetera, that seem to um, orient these people to be Trump followers. Um, not Republicans, but Trump followers um, versus non-Trump followers. Probably one of the biggest is absolutely a low empathy. So if you have empathy for only people with your same skin color or only your same uh, religion or only your same ethnicity slash city, you know, whatever, you know, it depends on the category. That's that's not really empathy. That's, I mean, that's a real truncated form of empathy, but it's really more of extended ego because the only reason I'm, I'm feeling things for these other people are because they have this category of their, of their personality or their behavior that is like mine. If you have empathy for people that don't look like you, don't pray like you, you'll never see the other side of the planet, et cetera, et cetera. 
those people, uh, you know, you're very different than me. So that's a really um, a, a much more full form of empathy. That's true empathy. Again, the other one is really not not full empathy. I mean, there's degrees to everything, but more like tribalism. Well, yeah, I mean that definitely overlaps. Tri the whole idea of tribalism overlaps. Uh, another huge common denominator. I don't know one, uh, and you know, in, in I don't know one Trump follower who I would say is self-actualized. You know, I think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Maslow's triangle. Highest is self-actualization. I don't know one. I don't know one. I, I think that might be the most common denominator. Um, now, empathy is in there too, but, uh, but self-actualization might be easier to identify. Uh, uh, those Venn diagrams overlap, but it might be easier to identify. Does this person seem self-actualized? You, you can kind of maybe assess that easier than assessing empathy sometimes. I, I know th those are two common areas. Uh, people tend to also look at the world in false, the Trump followers tend to look at the world in false dichotomies. Black or white, left or right, uh, good or bad. They're, they don't see shades of gray. People that see shades of gray tend not to like Donald Trump. People that see things as black and white, you know, and I'm not talking about the races, although, you know, racial things, but although that is one of those categories. Um, you know, I'm talking more metaphorical when I'm saying black and white. They, they, they um, but all those categories, every, I mean, you know, um, whatever it is, they, they, see, they don't see the gray zones on any issue. They see things as either one of two extremes. It's called false dichotomy thinking and you know, false dichotomy worldview. They also tend to be drawn to Donald Trump. People that need a strong man are really um, tend to be drawn to Donald Trump. Or, or people who want to be one. I feel like there are many people that look at him who follow him, who want to be able to do the things that he gets away with doing and, you know, grab them by the pussy or be this outlandish person that seems yeah. to be able to get away with so much. I think that they, for example, when the thing about the taxes came out, I was like, oh, God, they're going to love that because they'll be like, yeah, I want to get away. With I mean, who doesn't want to get away with just paying $750 in taxes? Of course, but no one really is going to do that because it's not right. But he is sort of the epitome of it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong. I'm just going to do it. And I think there are people out there. What, what else did you say about Mr. Zuckerberg? He's a great example as well. He's a lot like that, too. He's a trip, though, because I feel I feel that Trump's face says so much, whereas Zuckerberg Zuckerberg's face um, is there's he's got to be on the on the. They're both sociopaths, but the one one has a different Zuckerberg has more of the mask. He, he seems like he's wearing a mask, a physiologic living mask. It's creepy. And there's very little variation in his in his facial expression. Trump has hyper expressions of his uh, um uh, facial expression, but he still has relatively little variation in, in another way of thinking. In other words, the things that he does, he, it, 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 it's kind of similar to someone that doesn't have very much vocabulary. Um, is this as a limited yeah. vocabulary, but they shout the words and, you know, yeah. and it seems like they have more variety because they're shouting a lot. Um, and so body language wise, what's, what's the analogy? They, he, he still has a relatively limited body language vocabulary in his body and in his face, um, but he, he, he does dramatic work um, and uh, dramatic facial expressions. And particularly, like, say, when he's talking, uh, he, if, you, if you move his mouth and freeze frame 
the video, any given video, when he's saying a word and you go and you try and emulate that, you go, this, this extreme mouth expression that he has at this moment isn't necessary for the word he's saying, even at the volume that he's saying it. He exaggerates his facial expressions. And people that do that, that's a sign that they perceive themselves to be alpha. Um, if they're talking to one person or if they're talking to a room full of people or if they're talking on TV, um, you know, they perceive themselves to be alpha. People that hyper, hyper exaggerated facial expressions, um, you know, but those same people, you know, I mean, say something that not, it was not quite of, uh, you know, not all the way at the top of the food chain, like, like, that's not a good metaphor, but they say, say, say you had, uh, um, Someone like Mr. Silver, the NBA commissioner. I've noticed him before when he's talking to NBA players, he does that. He does that hyper alpha facial expression. But I've seen him before talking before Congress and, um, and he, he has a more of a normal facial expression because he's talking with people who are other alphas and he doesn't perceive them to be subordinate to him. He perceives the basketball players to be subordinate. Um, so, um, yeah. It is anyway. weird to see somebody like, Mark Zuckerberg, how his, even when he's saying something that you can tell that to him it's something that he's feeling, I can't see it at all really. Even the way he blinks is very strange. I mean, I don't want to shame anybody. It's just, it's a strange, it's strange to see that. Yeah, he, he, he's not as good as he thinks he is, but he, he, he's definitely good at fooling most people. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a funky feeling. You you feel like you're seeing Jason, you know, you with know. the mask. You mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, he's very. Um, he, he's got. Uh, some people might say he's got a blunted affect. I, I think a lot of that is practice, though. Um, you know, in other mm -hmm. words, if you saw him in private, he might have a lot more variation in his facial expression. But he 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 puts on a good mask in certain situations. I just watched. Um so actually on Twitter, when I watched your uh, your analysis of various videos that were posted, especially during the debates or, or Trump speaking or, or um, uh, Amy speaking or uh, any of that stuff. And I, I was like, oh, that's really, really interesting. And then I, I looked up uh, interviews with murderers, basically, where they bring them in for the first time into the, the questioning room our interrogation room and the detectives are asking and after reading all of all these different tweets of yours i'm like oh my god i see that i see that it's really wild once you start to see it you can't unsee it yeah yeah there's a um yeah there's a ton of those i yeah i can i, I gotta take those in small doses because they're hard to watch when you um you you can stare into the abyss too much, and when you see those evil people. But yeah, yeah, they're 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 absolutely a lot of signs. Um, one, uh, who is that guy? He's serving a life sentence or several life sentences. About ten years ago, he murdered his pregnant wife. Uh, I think mm -hmm. it's Lacey, Lacey Peterson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Peterson. So, so here's one. Here's here's a fascinating one that came out of it. So his. He, he, um, Lacey's mom was being interviewed. I, I don't remember her first name, but um, she was being interviewed after the fact. And one of the things that she revealed is that, uh, and this is a super red flag, um, that it, it's, if you ever hear this in a friend or a friend of a friend, you, you got to warn him. Um, he did not want to touch his pregnant wife's abdomen. He didn't want to feel the baby move. That's bizarre to me. As a father myself, that... That's such a bonding experience that 
That's that's just not bizarre to me. That's bizarre to everyone. If you hear that, at the very least, that 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 father's going to be a crappy father um, if he hangs around with a real high uh, percentage. He, he's probably not going to hang around. He's probably going to split. You know, he's not going to. He's going to want a divorce. He uh, he does not want to bond with that with that child. But it, it's even a greater warning sign because you know there's potential violence there. Um, that's that that person. Um, I, I would say there's a high index of suspicion that person could be, that woman and the child could be in danger. So that actually has been reported in a number of different violent situations. It just was interesting that that that, that comes to, um, it was in an interview and it was a really high profile case. But yeah, that's a warning sign. Do they, that's because they don't want to perceive it as a person. So they don't even acknowledge its existence. Yeah, I, it's, a dis, it's a dramatic distancing phenomenon. I don't acknowledge you as a person. I don't acknowledge you exist, that you're not mine. Uh, I don't want to hold you. I don't want to touch you. I don't want to bond with you. Um, you know, I, you know, stiff arming, you know, in a way, I mean, in a- it's so against the natural urge. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it, it hurts just to, I, I get, it gets me nauseous just to talk about it. it it's such a weird, odd thing um, for a father to do. Right? So yeah, any, any women out there that if you hear this, you know, hopefully you don't, but if you ever hear of it in a friend or a friend of a friend, you know, that's a warning sign. It's a dramatic yeah. one. Yeah. When there are children of narcissists present, uh, how uh, it's really interesting. I noticed like, when I was younger, I dated people that I, I, my brother used to say, why do you date these guys? And I say, I don't know. I'm just trying to get that. If you have a parent who is a narcissist, who's really all about themselves that you behave, you seek out people that are like that until all of a sudden the aha button goes off and you go, oh, maybe that's a bad idea. Maybe I should seek out people that resemble the love of the good parent. But what, yeah, are, the, what are the chances that people get out of that rut, you know? Yeah, I, well, I, a lot of clients, a lot of people that approach me are either in relationships with a narcissist or a sociopath or think, suspect they are. Often they are, or they've been through that and they don't want to make that mistake again. So, hey, um, you know, I fell in love with a sociopath or, I, or I'm in this relationship. I think this guy's a sociopath. Could, could they, and they want someone to validate that. And then, and, you know, once an expert says, yeah, it sounds like that's, that's, I have a very high index of suspicion or that absolutely is get out of there. It, you know, they want it, it, it. It makes sense if you're in a situation where you're not sure you want to leave, but you haven't been through this before. Yeah, you want to seek out someone who, 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 who you want, you want to be sure of, of something before you make a major life decision. Absolutely. But yeah, um, we all get fooled. Uh, and you want to be able to spot that you want to be able to spot that behavior. And, and, and uh, the, the, the key thing, the, the, the key thing is, is empathy. I mean, there's a lot of different behaviors, but that's the key thing. Um, yeah. Narcissists will, the, narcissists, have varying degrees of empathy. It's usually pretty darn low, but they can have some. Uh, sociopaths are even lower; virtually non-existent, and the psychopath has none. You know, it, 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 those. That's a, a a rough generalization, but most most of the time, a sociopath has just little glimpses, and usually they're faking it. Uh, but but a psychopath is none. So a sociopath is is a product in the environment, um, and a, and a psychopath is is a more genetic. That's that's a, a person's born that way kind of a thing. 
but but from a final common pathway, you know, when you see a person in their 20s or 30s or 40s, et cetera, you won't necessarily know which one it is. And, and, and they could be just as bad. Um, so, um, you know, either one of those categories, you don't want to be around. So, you, hmm, if they're a sociopath, maybe I'll give them a chance. You don't, you don't want that. You know, you're a sociopath or psychopath, you, you want to stay those people. And, and a narcissist as well. You know, yeah. that's, one notch, that's one notch better, but still awful. Uh, you don't want to be around a narcissist. Um, yeah, and I think once you understand that, it makes it, I think you start seeing it quicker and quicker, which is great. <laughs> yeah, that's what experience does. So, so all sociopaths are narcissists, but not all narcissists are sociopaths. Oh, interesting. Uh, but but they, they do overlap a good bit. But so all sociopaths are narcissists, but not all narcissists are sociopaths. So it's, it's one notch better, but it's still awful, you know, narcissism, you know. Um, <laughs> What are psychopaths very common, really? Uh, it, pretty rare. Um, yeah, I said rare. It, they're pretty uncommon, but um, you know, uh, it, you know, the, the psychopath sociopath fraction of the population is supposed to be about four percent, and the mi minority of those are psychopaths. Um, but if you group those two together, antisocial personality disorder is a technical term for those collectively. But um, but. Um, it, they need to come up with a different word because that's just, it, it sounds kind of more mundane, antisocial personality disorder. We, we need to be, we need to have better nomenclature there. But um, so the word sociopath and psychopath are kind of a little more colloquial. Uh, but um, yeah, about about one out of 25 people fit in that category. That now, seems like so people, high to me. <laughs> Jeez. Some people think it, it in actuality, it's higher. And I, I am one of those people. I think it, it's higher. Um, than one out of 25 people. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Now, the soci since a sociopath is a product of the environment, that is that could flux. You know, in other words, you know, some decades you could have more sociopaths, some decades you could have a little bit less percentage. But um, it's it's yeah, that that's fascinating, and it's hard to measure. It's hard to quantify, qualify. But yeah, that's the, the statistics that, that most experts will cite, about 4% are collectively in that group. So I've been following you on Twitter for a couple months at least. Uh, I learned of you through another friend of mine who followed you. And so every time they liked one of your things, it would show up in my feed. And uh, it's great. I really love it. Um, Thank you. What made you start? I mean, I'm going to guess that what made you start uh, responding to some of these uh, like the debates and some of these news conferences and the, the town halls and all this kind of stuff. Were you doing that all along or did something just finally go, oh my God, I can't take this anymore. I have to talk about it. Prior to November 9th of 2016, so the day after the election, I was, uh, I did, I commented on both Republicans and Democrats and I was really politically neutral on all my sites. I'd pick on Democrats and I'd pick on Republicans. I would praise, you know, different examples of each. And I was really trying to maintain a politically neutral stand. And, you know, it, uh, but I, I look at this as much more of a gestalt moment, uh, a much more of a meta historical moment. It's not political. It's way beyond politics. So, yeah, about four years ago, um, you know, shy a couple of weeks, um, about four years ago is, is when I started going, you know, I said, you know, F this, I'm, I'm just going in, I'm going in with knives, <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, be aggressive on this and I'm, I'm not holding back. So yeah, that's when I did it. But, um, you know, so I'll analyze 
Donald Trump a lot and, and, and Mike Pence a lot in different situations like that. Um, uh, so I'll concentrate much more on political, but I, I'll, I'll definitely analyze people that are not in the political spectrum. I want, you know, when I teach people, uh, lots of times I say, uh, watch a, a, a talk show. Um, where you have even even actors when they're not being, you know, when Daniel Day-Lewis is just, be, and he doesn't give too many interviews, rare, but when Daniel Day-Lewis is just being Daniel, he messes up some. Yeah, he's, he's a great actor. You know, regardless of the skill level of the actor, when they're just being themselves and they don't have 19 takes, you'd be surprised at what you could see. Uh, very skilled actors give away tells. And so why, you know, that, that's kind of cool because it says actors are professional liars in a way. But it's a social contract where you agree that, hey, dude, when you're acting, I want to I want to believe you're Superman or you're a spy or you're a, whatever um, you're acting. I want to believe that I want to be, uh, you know, you, I want my, my disbelief suspended and suspension of disbelief is what you know, people refer that to uh, refer, refer to that phenomenon. And, and you want to believe that. And so, yeah, you lie and and you're supposed to lie and we're supposed to believe it. And yeah, it's, a, it's an agreed upon thing. But if you know that actor in your private life, you don't want that guy to lie to you. Yeah, but when he's on screen, yeah, you want him to lie to you. So, but one thing this does when you see them interviewed and they're just being themselves, even though they're quote unquote professional liars, again, within that context, we see that, wait a second, they have all the foibles that you and me have. In other words, so even though they're professional and either they're pretty good, they may be able to fool us a little bit more, but not, not much, you know, probably about the same, even the skilled actors, that shows you how ingrained it is in the human psyche. It's part of our brain. It's hardwired into us. It's our behavior. I think that's why the actors who really are, who, who aren't acting, they're, they've become the character, are so yeah, much yeah. more enjoyable yeah, to watch. Yeah, yeah method acting. Yeah, it's, well, and I, I'll, I'll have people, you know, pick, um, like, what, like, when you have to eke out a smile and you have to eke out a laughter and you don't feel like it, one technique is to pick a couple people that, you know, that, really do it for you. One, one guy that does it for me is Chris Rock. So I, I've, I've watched a lot of his comedy, you know, and I, and I, just, I can just picture his name or hear the, hear the word, hear his name, but picture his face. And, um, you know, he's always got this half smile and, and he's, and, I, and, I, and it makes me smile just hearing his name or when I see an image of him in my mind and I might call up certain videos. He's also got this one-sided kind of yeah. smile. And uh, usually a, a, a smile that begins, often you want, you're, you want to be suspicious of asymmetrical facial expressions. There is some exceptions for smiling. So when you first go into a smile, sometimes it can begin asymmetrically uh, and you go out of it, particularly laughter, because it, even more so uh, out of context. If I'm trying not to laugh, um, but I'm, or I'm trying not to smile, like, like you were maybe in, um, in church that one time you cited. Yeah. You may be able to do it with one side of your mouth, but the other side of your mouth is kind of break it free and kind of laugh and smiling. So when he does that to his audience, he realizes, because he's a professional, and, and a lot of people realize this when they're real young, just intuitively, when they make people laugh in grade school, that if I'm laughing, smiling, we talked about mirroring earlier, um, you're priming your audience. So like, I don't even know what you're talking about, dude, but like just looking at your face, it makes me uh, mirror, mirror that face. And so your audience is primed. And so, so whatever you're saying next, is going to be funnier. It's going to be 20 or 30% funnier, but also I'm just going to be tripping the laughter quicker. And so if you do that, uh, picture uh, whatever comedian works for you uh, that really gets you just thinking of their image in your head or what you've watched a lot of, you know, pick that person that works for you and you'll be able to recall that. And that will 
you know, pull up that smile. Another thing is when, when you have to smile, maybe um, in a more reserved way, but you don't want to break out necessarily laughter, although that certainly helps. Always, always, always smile with your eyes. Um, you don't want to smile with your mouth first. You don't even want to smile with your mouth and your eyes at the same time. So begin smiling with your, with your uh, eyes and your mouth will follow. The caveat that I would put there is don't think about doing the cheese thing at all. Just pull your, pull your jaw backwards. So anyone that's listening to this, like, smile with your eyes and don't, don't try and make a, a, a concave up, you know, classic, you know, stick man drawing of a smile, pull your jaw backwards. By pulling your jaw backwards, once you've already smiled with your eyes, once you've already smiled with your eyes, pull your jaw backwards, it'll go right into a smile. It almost feels like you're falling down. It feels so easy and natural. But, but even more basic than that, if you smile with your eyes and try not to smile with your mouth, you'll smile with your mouth. It'll just kind of come in. It'll, yeah. it'll kind of tease yeah. it into it. So think about that if you, in, in situations when you have to smile, when it's difficult and you have to eke it out, um, you know, in a certain situation or even just for a, for a picture. So your eyes are always partially closed during a sincere smile. Always, always, always. Um, you see people smiling, their eyes are wide open. That's not a sincere smile. That might be a sincere person, but just in that moment, that's not a sincere smile. So interesting. You, since we brought up acting, I, you had mentioned that you are getting into that realm. So I assume, you, so you're already coaching some people for acting, but... Working with actors and some directors, yeah, and, um, and, and working on some screenplays. So it's really fascinating, beautiful stuff. I love it. It's fun, fun, fun. Um, I have a bias as a body language guy. I think that most... Um, uh, I, I think a lot of that, a lot of directors should do more close-ups and, and there are certainly directors that do a lot more close, you know, than others, but you know, it requires higher acting skill and maybe, maybe a few more takes. Some people don't want close-ups of their face, but that's, those are neat, uh, body language motion, uh, moments. And you end up projecting, if you're good, you end up projecting more the audience will bond more with you as an actor. And, and more with the film, you'll, you'll drive home that emotional moment more. So I don't think there's enough um, close-ups. And, and so I bias myself in that direction. That's one of my, but yeah, all sorts of, of course, the rest of the body has body language too. It's not just the face. Pound for pound, the eye, the, the, the face has more than the rest of the body. And pound for pound, the eye has more than the face. So, um, you know, if you, if you want, have you, if, if your audience is listening and they want to say, oh, geez, what, if I forget everything you say, Think about what are they? What are their eyes? Do their eyes seem honest to you? Do their do their eyes seem like they love you? Do their eyes seem like they're up? They're no good. It's always the eyes. It's always yeah, the trust, eyes. Trust their eyes, and um, you know we can talk about eye contact and we talk a whole bunch about different different nuances of eye contact are important. But um, yeah, trust the eyes. I love the Hollywood thing. I love the the the, the t film and TV. Um, it's it's. Um, there, I mean, there's a lot of great actors that don't get credit, but there's a lot of average actors or not so good actors that yeah. for one reason, maybe they got lucky early in their career and they happen to be a hit movie with maybe a good director, but they're not that good of an actor. Um, or, you know, or they, um, there's a lot of great directors that directed actors wrong um, in, in different scenes. Like, for example, like Roy Scheider's character, uh, Sheriff Brody, you know, way back in Jaws in 1976, I think, 75, um, you know, th that scene where he was first shoveling the, the chum out and, the, and he saw the shark up close for the first time and he backed up, his face was not anywhere near accurate 
it's not even close. It was another universe. That cigarette didn't even droop. He had a cigarette in his mouth. It just stayed straight. His eyes, his forehead didn't change at all. Um, that's not the face that a person who sees a shark, let alone a, a 25 fruiter, yeah. uh, you know, up yeah. close would, would have. Um, now, now that scene after, I mean, there was, a, there was some impactful things in that scene. I'm not trying to pick too much on, um, on um, Steven Spielberg, who was, that was his breakout film. I mean, he's a great director. But that particular scene, he got a lot of the body language wrong, particularly on, on Roy Schneider's character. Roy Schneider is a great, was a great actor. Um, but in that scene, that wasn't anywhere near accurate. Um, who are some of your favorite actors as far as that craft? Oh, I like it. Da- Daniel Day-Lewis is fantastic. The lady who played C.J. Craig. Oh, I love how Allison Janney. She's the Janney, best. She, she's she's a master. She blows me away. Yeah, that whole crew, that whole cast was fantastic. But she's she's like savant. Yeah, she's fantastic. And by the way, I was at a, a, a my some of my friends came into town to do a, a show, and she was there, and she was dancing and stuff. She is beautiful. In real life. I know she always does the characters where she could be kind of funny or whatever. Not that CJ CJ was obviously a beautiful woman, but in real life, stunner. Yeah. I, yeah, I'd love to know her and I'd love to meet her and say so just... Yeah. Like, hyper smart. I think she's probably hyper. Uh, yeah. I'd have to say she's... If you ask me, my 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 the, the actor that I saw that nailed the moment more than anyone most of the time, it, it, it'd be her. Um, but yeah, you know, I have a lot of a lot of actors that I love. I mean, I could go down a long list, but yeah, you know, everyone says Daniel Day Lewis or or um, um, I mean, heck, there's a, there's a ton of them. But uh, yeah, those I, those are my but my those are the dudes my two female male that that I cite. By the way, the the West Wing show that's going on right now, and that they did the stage play or the, you know the stage performance of an episode of West Wing. It's on HBO Max right now, and it's really, really, really good. Which episode was it? Uh, it's Hartsford Landing is the the one they did, the voting one, where there's uh, twenty some odd or forty some odd people in this little town of Hartsford Landing, and they're all waiting up till midnight to to yeah yeah, and they did it as a stage play, and it was. Fantastic! Yeah, there's a there's a ton of those uh, episodes. It's just man, they nail. It. Oh, so good! Yeah, I love that show. It's excellent. I uh, um, as we're like going off into the deep end, there is a uh, so the idea of method acting. We talked. We can just talk West Wing. I'll do a whole. I know. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, it's so good. Um, when an actor. So I know that the brain works a particular way and that, for example, the reason why we get excited and scared when we watch a scary movie is because the brain doesn't know that it's a movie. The brain is experiencing it as if we're experiencing the thing. So I'm always curious of actors who, let's say method actors, Daniel Day-Lewis is a great example because his extremes of characters, when he plays someone dark and twisty... Is his brain sudden? Is it? Is there a point of no return? So it might be hypocritical, but Jack Nicholson warned. I'm blank. I'm blanking again. I'm, I'm leaning in my tired brain and my um, um, my non-ability to recall actors when I, when I'm in an interview. Like this. <laughs> the young Australian actor that died that played um, Heath Ledger. Yeah, Heath Ledger. I loved him. Excellent actor. Uh, Jack Nicholson uh, supposedly warned. Uh, Heath Ledger, he said, be careful. I know you're a method actor. Uh, this is a dark character. Be careful. So, of course, Heath Ledger died of, of 
drug overdose, but not in a classic sense because it was a multiple drug interaction. And he, he, no one of those necessarily would have killed him, but he had the interaction, the, just the, the total toxic effect of all the drugs, regardless of interaction, is what killed him. And, and why did, I mean, it, did he have maybe some depression before that? Yeah, probably, maybe, but I, I'm, but he, he, he was taking those maybe recreational or for depression. There was a lot of people, so he, he did that during the, fil during the filming. And um, I think the last scene wasn't able to, there were some scenes they had to modify or, or um, with, with that, or that maybe, maybe it was the very end and they were able to do most of it anyway. But if you live in that dark area, that dark psyche of you're trying to emulate that, that awful person, you know, um, yeah. So it, did it make him more depressed? It was, was it more difficult to carry the weight of that? Yeah. Um, and, and the other, the other thing is like what I cited earlier, think of, a, um, you know, you, you, if you need to step it up in your life at a certain scene and be brave or whatever, I've had, I've, I've coached a number of different attorneys that confess that, that there was two scenes, particularly my cousin Vinny. <laughs> Ah, that's a great movie. Or the guy was not really an attorney, even in the film. He was faking he was an attorney, but he really wasn't an attorney. They say that inspired them to go to law school. So, I mean, you can pick different scenes in different films that are really inspirational that, you know, to go to law school, that's a big decision. But, but uh, that's a fascinating side story. But you can pick different scenes. Like when you, what scene really makes you feel confident when you really need to step it up? There's one... Um, so a star is born the more recent one with um bradley and gaga yeah with lady gaga when so they're she's backstage and then he surprises her hey i'm gonna sing this song i want you to come out she's like oh no 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 she gets all afraid and then uh, she, she there's that moment where she gets this really determined look in her face and really determined look in her eyes says f it man i'm doing this I'm doing this. And, and, and she gets the, that. That's my favorite moment of the film because there's a body language bias where I see, okay, she's diving in, you know, a lot like the song that she just sang is kind of the theme of the song that, that she went on to sing at that moment. But yeah, that determined look. So, you know, you might, if you feel that moment, uh, if you feel that strongly about that moment of the film or you want to watch that, that might be something that I would call up or someone else might call up at a moment when, the, when they need to just, just take the leap and, and do something really courageous when they're feeling trepidation or fear. Um, you know, there's all different scenes in movies that really inspire us. And when we, when we watch those scenes over and over and over, we might put a different scene on, or like at the end of uh, Dead Poet Society, when, he, when Ethan Hawke's character stands on, the, on, the, on his desk and says, oh, captain, my captain. You know, that, that's a scene where a young person or even an older person uh, would say, you know, he was going against all the peer pressure there and the authority and he stood on his chair and um you know and then other guys stood on their chair too but he had to be the first so whenever i'm thinking of a peer pressure situation i might draw up that so there's that positive you can use those scenes from film to recreate that emotion in yourself because you don't realize it but you're doing a little method acting when you watch that scene over that's why you like watching that scene because you you get something from it you recreate that character that fictional character for at least parts of it bits of it in your head at that time so later on when you've seen that scene like a few dozen times or maybe a few hundred times if you really like the film and you can recreate that in your head at those moments just on the fly when you need to recreate whatever that motion was 
go back to those scenes and and that will do the exact opposite of the bad thing with Heath Ledger and, and you know, in, in the depression or, or Dan, you know, Daniel Day Lewis, when he's playing, uh, um, there will be blood, you know, that, <laughs> you okay. know, all the, dark, all the dark characters. And that guy kind of look like him a little bit. I see Daniel Day Lewis in you a little bit too. Well, thank you. Yeah. He's not, a, not the crazy, not the crazy one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> well, like when he was playing Lincoln, he, um, Oh yeah. He, uh, he stayed in character the whole time when he was offset. People had to dress him as Mr. Lincoln. He had that voice, you know? Um, yeah, it's a, uh, so here's a story. When I, when I was a sophomore and undergrad, I uh, did this project where you had to pretend you were either a paraplegic and go around in a wheelchair, pretend you were blind and go around with either a leader dog or a um, blind stick. Um, and, and there was one other one that I can't remember. And then, or you, if you spoke another language, you could pretend you were fo a foreign student. And it was the first two weeks of, of class. And the, the, the object was to write a paper about how people would treat you different, um, you know, when they perceived you to be, you know, someone different than, how do they treat you different if they think you're from Germany and you don't speak English or that you're blind? How do they treat you different? And so it was an optional thing. You didn't have to do it. And I, I asked him because my my roommate was Australian and he taught me how to speak in Aussie. Um, and we got to class like two weeks earlier. Before. So before, before school started, he got me speaking Aussie pretty good. And I could speak Aussie pretty good. And I just kept on doing that. And, and when I, and the, all, the, all the Aussies that I know, when I emulate them, I'm not, I'm not maybe perfect if there's someone from Sydney or Perth listening to me, I might not hear it right. But most Americans, I feel most Americans. But when I did that, I can't do a sad Aussie. So I can't do a sad Aussie. I only could do a happy Aussie. So I, though, so I was not just emulating the accent. I was emulating the people who I knew in my life that were Australian, and they were just really, really happy people. So there was me doing method acting to, to try and get the Aussie accent down. But I also, without realizing, it was borrowing their positive affect, their joy. They were really joyful people. So I kind of backed in the side door, and I said, wait a second. It's a way to get myself in a good mood. Uh, so, you know, it, it, I can't do a sad Aussie. So I, I did, it's, it's a funny kind of story, but it really taught me that, you know, we can use how you can, you can, you can really get yourself in a better mood. You can get yourself in a sour mood if you, you know, if, or a PTSD, if you, if you re-rehearse, re-rehearse the, the bad thing, you're, you're going, you're making that wound over and over and over and over and over and over again. You're, you're, you're ripping the bandaid off the wound. If you re-rehearse a positive emotion, um, whether you went through it, but maybe even when you didn't go through, maybe it's a fictional character you're watching on a, a film that you've seen over and over again, you're re-rehearsing the opposite of that. So it's, it's really PTSD. You're re-rehearsing you're re the old wound, whatever the wound was, you're reliving it, you're reliving it, you're reliving it, and you're graining it. We can do the opposite. We can take a positive emotion and relive it, relive it, relive it, and your body and your face will emulate that. Wow, that's a great idea. Use that in the other direction. And of course, you can. You don't have to have a film. You can re-rehearse things you've lived through that you experienced yeah. before. You just relive them over and over and over again. So it's the, it's the same phenomenon, but a different direction. To that end, as we get ever closer to Election Day, and I think that for a lot of us, it, it feels very much like um, whatever current stress disorder instead of post-traumatic stress disorder it's i think we're yeah we're all we're all in a very heightened feel even the people who are for, whether you're for the president or against him i think everybody is at this heightened place 
what do you see both as a doctor and as a as a person who understands behavior and and such how do you see all of that de-escalating um i there, there, if you talk to psychologists or psychiatrists around the country um even in canada or australia or in, or the uk or i mean there's a lot i'm in, i'm blown away humbled by the degree to which other countries are paying attention to our politics and to the degree to which the average foreigner knows our politics so it's not just for the united states but it's for other other countries let's say joe wins there, it'll still be ongoing. But if you talk to any psychiatrist or psychologist, they're just inundated with people really, really triggered. And it's not just that they're worried about the situation that's going on right now. Uh, absolutely they are and what's going to happen in the near future. But this guy and people that are behaving badly because of this guy are triggering past traumas that they may have had in their children, their, in their childhood. That, that So if I was abused or someone was abused when they were a childhood or teen or something or sometime earlier in their life, this guy and other people that are modeling their behavior after him are triggering these other people. So all this latent buried crap that's way back in our past is being resurfaced in addition to the present shit that's going on right now. So it's a really, they're, they're, psychologists and psychiatrists are, uh, are, will really, and therapists, uh, family therapists, uh, um, school psychologists are all really um, have, we need to have double or triple the amount of those people. We, did, we needed that before anyway, but we really need it now. They're, they're going to be busy for months and years to come. Yeah, in, in this universe where, where, where Joe and Kamala are going to win, and, and you know, um, yeah, it's, it, in the other universe where something else happens, uh, I don't even want to go there. But yeah, that'll, that'll <laughs> yeah, T I'm tunneling to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> they won't let us in. Yeah, they, you have to tunnel. The borders yeah, yeah. will be closed. Yeah. I, uh, tell everyone how they, I don't, I could talk to you all freaking day, but uh, tell everybody how to find you in all those good places. Well, my um, website is Body Language EQ. Uh, that stands for emotional quotes, bodylanguageeq.com. Uh, and also yeah, on Twitter, if you just say Jack Brown, Body Language Twitter, I can give you my long, um, my longer uh, address there, but it's, it's probably just, if you just do Jack Brown Body Language Twitter, you'll find me real easy. Yeah, and I'll put links. Either one of those, and they link back and forth, and you know. Yeah, I highly, highly recommend the Twitter for sure. It's fascinating. Like I was saying, I've done deep dives, not only to your Twitter, but because of that, going into other places, and, and it really does open up the world to some things, for better or for yeah. worse. It does. You know, it, it'll, it'll change. It's really a watershed skill. It'll change the way you look at everything. And you even get good at self-analysis. I mean, one thing is, okay, reading someone else's body language. Are they lying? Are they telling the truth? Do they love me? Do they not? Should I take this job? Etc. Um, uh, but also, how do I behave in context? Am I bonding? Am I building rapport? Am, am I sending out the signal I want to send out in the context I want to send it out in? But also, there's a third element of that, and that's kind of a form of biofeedback. So even if you're alone um, with yourself, you know, driving or just working alone, uh, even if your job is most of the time alone, you can use about your own self-assessment in real time of your body to really uh, is kind of a form of a biofeedback, both to calm yourself down, but also to be self-honest. We deceive ourselves a lot. So you can use it as a form of biofeedback, but also as a, is kind of a, you know, 
self-honesty technique. Um, and so it's, it's a fascinating thing for your own, your, your, your own self-improvement, regardless, even if you're around other people. But yeah, most people want it to be able to read other people or to increase their their uh communication skill you know yeah and if you're aware of the feeling that's coming up in yourself if suddenly you have a feeling and then we're taught oh don't have a feeling in front of people so you maybe push it back down but if you pay attention to that and then you could say okay what is this feeling i like to anthropomorphize my feelings when i when i'm having a reaction to something I'm like all right where was the first time i felt that usually you can find a link to however you're feeling in the moment to something that happened generally when you're a kid and and sort of have a conversation with the younger version of yourself so that the now, this is probably way convoluted, but the now person that you are can let, to, can, can let that old version of yourself know that they're safe and okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, most people have, a lot of people have difficulty recalling those. And when did I first feel anxiety? When did I first feel loneliness? When did I first feel, you know, and maybe someone's known loneliness their whole life, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, yeah um, that, that's a sign of um, a high emotional intelligence, someone that can recall those first moments when they felt certain things in their childhood. Um, um, you know, you don't bury things. Uh, people that bury different emotions um, would tend not to remember those times. I feel like it's so. more, at least for me, I don't know if it's the very first experience of the experience, but it's, it's more like uh, the first time that I remember feeling like that, which may be when, you know, you're 11 or seven or not necessarily yeah. three or four. They really stick out in your mind. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. It's, um, it's amazing any of us survive, honestly. <laughs> Childhood can be real tough. <laughs> well, I mean, children are brave. Children, you know, when you think about the average elementary school student, they are all the time doing something for the first time. And we're saying, oh, don't worry about it. It was okay. I did that when I was your age. But the kid at the time is really, really has a high anxiety about that. You can think back. As adults, we get all like, oh, I'm an expert in this area and this is my job and this, I'm not going here. We get really good at insulating ourselves from new experience. As children, we did new experiences all the time. So yeah, to channel your younger self, that's a beautiful thing and it'll make you a healthier adult. Yeah, my dad, my dad always says, never do anything for the first time, which makes me laugh. Meaning tell your brain like you've done it a million times before, you know, that. Yeah, well, and that's, yeah. And if, even if you've done it once, um, you know, if you, like I said earlier, if you re-rehearse it, like you've done it a thousand times, then, you know, you might only sunk that one basket, you know, one game winner in your whole life. But if you re-rehearse it a bunch of times, you feel like Mark, Michael Jordan or, you know, LeBron James. Um, but same thing getting on stage, you know. Yeah. Um, if you maybe get real nervous, you only been on stage once and yeah, you were, you, you did good once, but all the other times you did bad. Just remember that one time and re-rehearse it. Yeah. Cause your you brain know. doesn't know the difference, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a form of self-hypnosis. Uh, but yeah. yeah. Um, so. I love that. Dr. Jack Brown, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it, especially because I took a lot of your time. So thank you for that. And uh, thank you. Thank you. I'd love to come back. And if you ever want to go into any of these subtopics in more detail or. Oh, for sure. That'd be great. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you for having me on. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Take care of each other. Be kind. Love you. 